So if I have someone come to my office needing to talk about something, it's my habit to hand them Play-Doh. Um, when I was a hospital chaplain, I did the same thing. I would give them Play-Doh, I carried it around in my pocket. And sure enough, people who were stressed out and unable to talk when their hands got busy had lots and lots to say. And I think the truth is that many of us don't realize day to day how much our minds and bodies are connected. But the truth is that we are helped when we're using not just our mind, but also our bodies. And so Play-Doh is one of my tricks for sure, even if your ability is only making a snake and a nice little coil afterwards. But when I read this story of Peter and the others with him returning to work after Jesus's resurrection, I actually see it as healthier than a lot of people do. They're sitting around, there's a ton of uncertainty. They're not at all sure what would happen or has happened. And as much as it is a good thing, after Jesus' death, after they went through the horrible crucifixion with him, to see him resurrected again, the truth is it's also traumatic. This person who they thought was dead, who they were sure like most people would stay dead, all of a sudden wasn't. And it wasn't that he was just walking around among them. Lazarus had done that, they'd seen that before. It was also that he was different somehow. And so when Peter and the others returned to work, I actually think that's a way of honoring both their minds and ability to wrap their head, wrap itself around what has happened, and the body's need to help the mind work through that. You see, the work of fishing is inherently physical. It is putting in nets and tugging them back in. It is doing this over and over and over again. And if you've ever gone net fishing, even with the ones we have today that are much, much lighter, you know that it is work. It is work in your shoulders, in your hands, and you feel it by the time you're eating those fish. And so I do think that for Peter, for the other disciples with him, this is so familiar, it is helpful. It is last week what we talked about, that familiar sense of riding a bike or something that they know so well that it is calming. And because it is calming, it is actually one of the things that helps them sort out this traumatic event that has happened around them. And even if what they have experienced ends up being good doesn't mean they can sort it out right away. And so after they are done fishing, after they've gone out fishing all night, after they have caught nothing and they're there in the boat waiting, waiting on Jesus, then it still becomes true that the person who calls them back to the shore is calling them to impossibility. There's a the sense that Jesus is certainly more than he was before his death. And he is much more in resurrection. And this thing that is impossible, this person that is impossible, this event that is so impossible, still calls to them. And calls not just Peter, but Peter and those other disciples back to the shore. Now, when they make it to the shore, I would expect more conversation. Um, 
I would especially expect more conversation because this is John telling us the story of gospel. John really, really likes to describe long conversations. It's John who tells us of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that is absolutely terrible to read in worship and yet a rich, rich conversation. It is John who tells us the story of Jesus talking with the woman at the well. It is, Je- it is John who records over and over again all of these conversations more than actions. John likes to explain why something is happening. John likes to explain why we should care that something is happening. And yet in this story, this story in which the disciples have returned to work, in which they're wondering what on earth is next, In this story, when they come back and we don't know much at all about what all is happening, there is no explanation. There's not even forgiveness spoken. And I think this story, we hope, we expect forgiveness. Because Peter is the disciple who denied he even knew Jesus, but everything was going down. But it's not spoken. Implied, maybe, but spoken, no. And as much as I wonder about why on earth there's no conversation, why on earth this is just such a strict, such a stark encounter, fish overflowing, fish come to the shore, I also am pretty sure that this story echoes the impossible abundance of the story of the prodigal son. In that story, there are two sons and a benevolent father, and one of the sons asks for his inheritance. He goes away, he squanders his wealth, there's a famine in the land, he gets a job slopping pigs, and as he looks and realizes he would eat the food that the pigs are eating, he says, you know what, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home, I'm going to hope my dad will take me in, because even the servants there are better than are faring better than I am now. So he goes home. He makes the journey back. His other brother is still there. And he says, I'm sorry, make me a servant, whatever. Just please let me come back. But the father had seen him coming. When he saw him coming, he went out and he got a robe and he put it on his son and and he asked the servants to go and kill the fatted calf and declared a feast. He said, welcome, my son has come home. And there is this great rejoicing when the son hasn't even said, really, I'm sorry. He said, I'll take a job as a servant. But there's this profound story of forgiveness that wasn't even asked for, forgiveness that is more abundant than he could have imagined, forgiveness that keeps coming and coming and coming because that's what we're called to do. And so in that story, we have a son who has given more than he could imagine. And here we have Peter and disciples who are given far more than they could have imagined. Now in this story, we also have another food encounter. And as we've talked over the last weeks, because when Jesus shows up, Even in resurrection, there is food. It's still an echo of the Jesus who fed thousands. 
who took a few fishes and loaves and made it stretch to crowds of thousands of men and women and children. And I think that is telling that again, again in resurrection, we have this echo of food, this echo again of the Jesus they knew, just to be sure the Jesus who was is the Jesus who is, even though he's something. So I think in this encounter, this encounter when Jesus is there on the shore, when Peter and the other disciples are there with him, what we kind of expect to happen is the hash out the wrongs. To say, oh, I did this, and say, oh, I know, and have that conversation of forgiveness that is often necessary. But there, on the shore, instead of them trying to figure out what it looks like to move forward, what it looks like for them to be in relationship now, we get kind of a second story of abundance. And so I'm wondering, when we have these nets of fish, this net that is full and should be breaking, but isn't, what on earth do we do? What on earth do we do with these fish? These fish. Now, we have a shocking, shockingly precise detail. It's not just that there are nets and there are bunches of fish. It's that there are 153 fish. Now, why on earth would we say 153? 153 fish. I wonder a little bit if that's like the ancient equivalent of saying a bazillion, something that can't be quantified that just indicates a huge amount. There are plenty of people who say, oh, this has this specific significance. And they do some math that was known in the ancient world that seems a little bit of a stretch to me. And we could spend a lot of time going down that road, but what I really care about is how striking it is in this story that we actually are given a hard number. If you read the Bible, we actually don't get a ton of those. We don't get many super prescriptive or descriptive things saying, here's how many, here's exactly this. And when it comes to Jesus, we really, really, really don't get those. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if you were standing there with Jesus and you said, how many fish are in this net? He would just tell you a parable that doesn't remotely answer the question you asked. But still we have this overflowing, but not breaking net. And I think at its very, very best, this is a story that teaches us a practice of abundance. The disciples, who have quite frankly been to hell and back along with Jesus, who have seen the very worst thing possible and are standing on the other side of it, who are still going back to fishing to try and reconcile everything that has happened with what is going on in their bodies, in their minds, 
in this dejected, confused, traumatized state, I firmly believe that someone bothered to count the fish. They bothered to sit there and count until they got to 153. I don't know if it was 153 tiny fish, like goldfish, or 153 giant fish, or 153 in between, or a little bit of everything as tends to happen more with net fishing. But someone bothered to count. And I'm guessing they bothered to count because it was so unexpected and so And so in the story about fish, in the story about fish that came in the middle of something unprecedented and traumatic, they still counted their joys, their blessings, those fish. And I wonder if those of us who are going through something unprecedented, uncertain, maybe even a little traumatic, can also count our joys. 153 of them. Can you find 153 things to celebrate, big or small, in the coming weeks? Not coming weeks, actually, just this coming week. And I would love to see that list if you make it. Because I'm guessing if you tried, there's more that you can count than you ever imagined. And you can stop at 153 if you want to, or you can keep going. But no matter what you choose, blessings on your holy counting.